Panita end such a nice offertory with that. Well, we are in Psalm 22 today. Happy Resurrection Day. Glad that you could spend the morning with us this morning. Would you stand as we read together this fantastic psalm? If, as we continue our study of the book of Psalms, I thought it would be appropriate to have this as our text today, and I think you'll, you'll soon realize why. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There's none to help. Many bowls encompass me, strong bowls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones out of joint, my heart like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is tried, dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Let's pray. Father, what wonderful words, hard words in the beginning, glorious words at the end. Father, thank you for them and thank you for the blessing of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, Charles Spurgeon once said of Psalm 22 that it was beyond all others the psalm of the cross. And of course, the very first words of the psalm were actually quoted by Jesus on the cross. Matthew tells us that Jesus said, Eli, Eli, which is my God, my God, lama sabachthani, which translated into English continues, why have you forsaken me? Now, was Jesus just trying to fit his life to match things that people like David had said in the Old Testament? Or were the words that David penned in Psalm 22 prophetic of what would happen centuries later? That, you see the difference? One is, did Jesus look back and try and co-opt it as his? Or did David look forward at what would happen to his Savior? And the New Testament authors certainly teach that the second answer is the better one, that David wrote this passage and others like it and meant them uh, as a foretelling and a prophetic utterance of what would happen. Peter in Acts 2, for example, writes, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so we see Peter calls David a prophet who foresaw the resurrection of Christ in a slightly different passage. In 1 Peter 1, Peter says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so what we see is this this assertion by the New Testament authors that the prophets, among whom included David, foresaw and predicted both the resurrection and the sufferings of the Christ. And you ask, is that really possible? I suppose the answer is whether you believe that God could and would inspire authors of the scriptures to write things that were yet to happen. And I will tell you this, the Old Testament contains over 300 prophetic passages that refer to the Messiah. 48 of them specifically refer to his life and death and resurrection. All 300 published, of course, during an 1,100-year period that ended four centuries before Jesus was even born in Bethlehem. Micah, for example, 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And Jacob in Genesis 49 says something similar, that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. So what we have here is Jacob saying the Messiah would be born in Judah. Micah, more specifically, not just in the tribal territory of Judah, but in the village of Bethlehem in Judah, 
And so in the New Testament, when we read Matthew 2, 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the, king of, the time of King Herod, we, we read that and we marvel at the fact that out of the 12 tribes in Judah and out of the multiple, at this time, there were almost 2,000 villages in Judah. So out of all of those that Micah and Jacob would get it right that the Messiah would be born there. And like I said, there are so many more. Zechariah 9, 9 reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then in Luke 19, we see that Jesus does that, that as the people threw their cloaks upon the ground, this being Palm Sunday, the entrance into Jerusalem, that he rode on the back of a colt. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And then in Matthew 26, we read about how Judas one of the 12, and obviously a close friend, a disciple of Jesus, comes with a large crowd armed with swords and clubs to betray him to the Sanhedrin. And although it's not unusual for a king to be betrayed by a close associate, the betrayal of a religious leader by a disciple, that's, that's actually pretty unusual from an historic standpoint. But then we come to our morning's passage, Psalm 22, verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Did you, did you see how there were two separate predictions there that the Messiah would have his hands and feet pierced and the People would gamble for his clothing. And did I mention that there were over 300 of these types of prophecies about Christ? And they actually get better. The Old Testament predicts that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11 says this, that I took my staff called favor, broke it, revoking the covenant I made with all the nations revoked on that day so that the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. And I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And that's the amount that Judas takes from the Sanhedrin as payment for betraying Christ. And then verse 13 says, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, this handsome price at which they have priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to give to the potter. And Matthew 27 records this interesting fact that Judas threw the money into the temple and left. They wouldn't take back his money once he realized. And we don't know fully what was going through Judas's mind and what his purposes were. We know he was motivated by the wrong motives, by the by the devil and betrays his good friend and his master and ultimately feels convicted over that in some capacity. But he goes back to the 
leadership of Israel and tries to give them back the money and they don't want it. So he throws it into the temple and they, saying this is blood money, decided not to use it but instead buy a potter's field. And I think as we read those types of things and we, we string them all together, you know, if you were like me, you, you believe that there's more to this word of God than just words on a page. The Old Testament continues to say that the Messiah would be silent before his accusers, would be crucified with thieves, that his side would be pierced, that none of his bones would be broken in a torturous death, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, that darkness would cover the earth at the moment that he died. And, you know, as you, as you read through all of those and put them together, you may be trying to reason, well, Jesus knew the Old Testament. He was, after all, regarded by the authorities to be a wise teacher, so couldn't he go through and, and put those together? What if he just believed he was the Messiah and attempted to fulfill all of these things that were said about him? And my response is that being generous... Maybe half, at most, half of the prophecies could be fulfilled by someone painstakingly trying to match their life in statements to what was said in the Old Testament. It's true, he could have known these first verses of Psalm 22 and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could have purposefully ridden on a donkey into Jerusalem. But what about the prophecies of his birth? or his death, or of the natural events, all of which Jesus could not control, like darkness, as Amos 8 9 records in ahead of time. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, speaking of the Messiah and his death, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I think regardless of the individual probabilities we assign to these separate things, one must still be confronted by the staggeringly low combined probability that one person would fulfill all of those things. And so today, a day during which the church throughout the world celebrates the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, you are asked to consider, who is this Jesus? Jesus once asked the disciple Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the son of God. And Jesus told him the man had not revealed that to Peter, but God had revealed it to Peter. And I say all of this because I invite you to look at Psalm 22 with awe. I invite you to look at it, I exhort you to be led by it, to ask, who is this Jesus? Now when... We look closely at Psalm 22, we realize that it has some unusual descriptions. They are not of someone suffering from illness, but of someone suffering physical pain from persecution. Verse 6 speaks of being scorned by mankind and despised by people. Verse 14 describes bones out of joint with the tongue sticking to the jaws as he is laid in the dust of death. There is no incident in David's life author of this psalm that would match this description. 
Certainly he was persecuted, he was pursued, he was mocked at times, but he was never to our knowledge injured and tortured to the point of death. Jesus quotes Psalm 22 because David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had written about him and described both the horror of the cross but also the hope and the reality of the resurrection. In fact, look at this comment in Hebrews 2 where the author says, For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. If you remember from what we read in Psalm 22, this is a quote. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So what is the author of Hebrews doing here? He actually is saying that Jesus spoke the words of Psalm 22, and it's as if David recorded the words that Jesus would say as God inspired him to write them. And that means that if God really took the time to have that level of revelation to someone like David, then we need to pay close attention to what he recorded there. Look again at verses 1 to 2 where we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. In these first words, they stand out in their anguish and in their desperation. It's as if all of the events leading up to the resurrection, we just skipped them, I mean to the crucifixion, we skipped them. And we've gotten here to the last moments of Jesus' death. And of course, there was much that had happened that night, right? In that 36 hours leading up to this, Jesus had spent an exhausting day and night appearing before Pilate and Herod. He had been beaten and mocked and spit upon and whipped. His hair had been torn out, thorns pressed upon his skin. He had carried a rough-hewn beam of wood from Pilate's court to the hill of Golgotha outside the city. Nails had been driven through wrists and ankles, and he had suffered excruciating agony, attempting not to suffocate. The later verses of Psalm 22 describe some of that. I'm a worm and not a man, verses 6 and 7. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people, and they're mocking me. Make mouths at me and wag their heads. And Matthew 27 describes that mocking. In fact, it uses the same wording, and And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. Then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And as I mentioned, of course, there are amazing statements in in Psalm 22. Verses 14 and following. I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart like wax. 
melted within my breast. You can see this desperate description of a person near death. You lay me in the dust of death. These dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers are encircling me, and they have pierced my hands and feet. Wow. And divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. And you know that in Matthew 27, it says that that's what happened. They divided his garments among them by casting lots when they had crucified him. You know from the descriptions in John 20 about the marks in Jesus' hands, wrists from having been pierced by nails. And so we're not amazed, at least if we believe that God inspired David, we're not amazed at what we read there. Given the brutality described in Psalm 22 in the Gospels, I find it significant that despite all that happened, over those hours that led up to the cross, despite being reviled and mocked and despised, that Luke 23 says that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke tells us that Jesus' heart, his mind, were not on his own needs throughout that whole time, but upon the needs of those who had placed him on a cross. And that's why verses these first verses of Psalm 22 are so riveting. We skip over those initial events, all of that drama and torture and everything leading up to the cross, and, and they bring us to these last moments of Jesus' life when he did, but for a second, think about himself. But that thought was not a thought of self-pity. It was not a thought of complaint or anger. It was a lament of abandonment. He, the Son, had been forsaken, abandoned by the Father. And no one has ever lived in the darkness into which he was in that moment plunged. This full fury of the curse falling upon him that was meant for us. And in that moment, Jesus experiences not the love of the Father, but the wrathful fury of the Father. And as 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus forsaken so that we would not ever be forsaken. And the beauty of that is that Jesus himself promises us what he was not able to experience, and that is, behold, I am with you always. We will never be forsaken. And so at the cross, we see the cost to sin. We see this abandonment of Christ to the fury of the wrath of God against sin. An innocent lamb led to the slaughter because he is willing to take our place. And so his cry of why in verse 1 is not one of unbelief. It is a cry of faith amidst pain. It is the desire to have fellowship and relationship restored because it is a cry to my God, Eli, my God. Is that your cry in the midst of suffering when you cannot find the reason for your troubles? Is your cry one of faith or one of complaint? What do you do when you feel that God is distant? Of course, neither you nor I will experience 
the abandonment that Jesus did, as I just read, he says, I am with you always. But there are times when you feel that God is distant. There are times when you don't understand why you experience the things you do. So what does the psalmist, what does Jesus, since this is who this is about, do in these verses? He recalls God's faithfulness. Look at verses 3 through 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And that word trusted is repeated three times in these verses. The fathers trusted God and God delivered them. And when Jesus was in his darkest hour, he strengthens his own heart by remembering the way God had been faithful to the people of the past. That's what you need to do when you face similar circumstances. Recite in your mind, God has been good to Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ruth, David, Esther, the disciples, the people of church history, to you, those who trusted in him. And even as the focus shifts six and seven back to the pain of the moment, yet once again, beginning in verse eight, the Savior rehearses God's goodness. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. On you I was cast from birth. Be not far from me. So when you are troubled, remember the grace of God. He has been faithful to you again and again. And by the time we reach verse 19, we wonder, despite the rehearsing of God's faithfulness, we have it punctuated by these vivid descriptions of pain, and we get to verse 19, and we wonder if there is hope. Yes, God has been faithful in the past, so we can trust him. We want to have fellowship and relationship restored with our God. And so in the most despairing moment, Jesus calls out, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. Was it effective? A lot of people look at Psalm 22, they call it a Good Friday psalm. But look at the cry of exultation in verse 21. I'm going to read it in a different version because I think the New King James actually does a little bit better in this sense where it says, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen, end of the sentence, you have heard me, exclamation point. So right there, verse 21, this is this pivot point. From despair to delight, God has heard it starts with, my God, why have you forsaken me? It begins to move through a time of, of strengthening remembrance of God's faithfulness, rehearsing of what God has done in the past, the punctuations of, I'm in pain, my tongue sticks to my jaws, I'm being laid in the dust of death. God, hear me, come to my aid. Verse 21, you have heard. Now, you've heard me preach on suffering before, and you've heard me say that suffering can be a gift 
That's what Philippians says. Because through suffering, we not only bear Christ's afflictions in our own life, but we share in a type of empathetic fellowship, a kinship of suffering with our Savior by understanding what he suffered. But I hope you've never taken from those teachings that suffering is somehow good in and of itself and that we just grin and bear pain. We should trust God. We should fight for joy. We should be thankful for the gift in its time of suffering. But it's called suffering because it's suffering. Because it's painful. And Jesus' example is that we can call out to God to deliver us. Just as Paul also prayed for God to remove the suffering from his life. Even remember Jesus' prayer, Gethsemane. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. You must have both. You must have a crying out to God for deliverance while you trust in his timing and purpose. But what sweet delight when God rescues you. When God hears you. Now, some of you have been burdened by a view of the crucifixion that Jesus died in despair, that he cried out that the Father had forsaken him and then physically died from the sheer horror and burden of that moment. That's how a lot of people view the crucifixion. Psalm 22 helps us understand that this is not the case. Yes, there was that moment of abandonment and despair, That's what verses 1 through 20 bring out. But the final words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished. Those are also the final words of Psalm 22. Verse 31 ends with the phrase, he has done it. But in Hebrew, it's literally, it is done. And so in between... Why have you forsaken me of verse 1 and it is done or it is finished of verse 31 or verses 21 through 30? And because this psalm is prophetically about Christ on the cross, I believe that these verses suggest that God, the Son, was assured while he was still on the cross that the Father had heard him, that he was confident that his atonement was accepted, and that untold generations of his people would be saved and become his brothers and sisters. What glory then to read in verses 22 through the end, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Isn't that great in that moment? For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He is, it wasn't left in forsakenness and abandonment, but he has not ignored the affliction of the afflicted. He has not kept his face hidden. He has heard. And so the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. And those who seek him shall praise the Lord May your hearts live forever. You know, these are such great words, aren't they? Words of Christ there before the very end. 
And it's amazing, as I said earlier, that Jesus' primary concern throughout the crucifixion is a concern for others. Father, forgive them, he said to the torturers. Take care of my mother, he says to the disciple John. And yes, for a moment in the darkest hour, yes, he cries out from the pain of broken fellowship with the Father, but when that fellowship is restored, and while on the edge of the most painful of deaths, his thought is to declare to his brothers the goodness of God. How could all of that be accomplished if he dies just a short time later? How could he bring that news like the psalm says to the ends of the earth? Well, look at verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation, and they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. See, after Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, he appeared to many to comfort them regarding his death, to explain how all of these things tied in. And I'm sure he was mentioning Psalm 22 in that moment, along with many other passages. And then he commissions them to preach that good news. And that is the fulfillment of Psalm 22. Take this. That that commissioning in Matthew 28 is what he's already said will be accomplished on the cross in Psalm 22. So friends, this psalm is a fantastic psalm. And when you realize that Jesus didn't just co-opt the words of the psalm, but rather that the psalm was prophetic of what he would say, these spirit-inspired revelations into actual words, actual events, even the mind and heart of Christ... I think the ultimate consequence of all of this is that we must be led to worship. Jesus Christ suffered and died, verses 1 through 20. Suffering, God hears in verse 21. He looks forward to what would happen, 22 to 31. And it takes place after he rises from the dead. And you are invited today to believe that. What an amazing volume of miraculous evidence we have. Again, not just Psalm 22, but throughout the scriptures. Even as Jesus said, leading up to this point, that he would lay down his life for his sheep. He was going to the cross in our place. He warned the disciples. This last time down at the Passover is going to be the last one. The Son of Man will be lifted up. And like the sign of Jonah, be in the earth three days, you know, just so many of these things. But Jesus Christ is alive. The Father heard his cries, delivered him, he rose again, you were summoned to worship because the tomb is empty and death has been swallowed up in victory. Because God heard the cry of a son because the son was innocent with regard to sin and because his atonement was accepted on your behalf, a great congregation of believers has been gathered. The poor and afflicted are there, verse 26 of Psalm 22. The rich and the prosperous are there, verse 29. And in verse 27, all the ends of the earth, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, all people from every class, every background, brought into this great congregation through faith in Jesus to praise him because the tomb is empty and Jesus lives. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
And will you serve him? Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word, the powerful testimony of this psalm that was the writing of David, but not describing his own life, but describing that of Christ on the cross. And what an amazing thing that over the millennia before Christ, you prepared that way. You prepared people so that by the time Jesus came, Peter is able to preach to the nation after Christ's resurrection and, and lay it all out for them, and they are convicted because you had prepared them with your word. Lord, help us not to be complacent and take for granted what you have done in all of this, but let us marvel, I pray, of your goodness in bringing us a Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. the church calendar, which we don't necessarily follow, um, it's more of a thing, though, that has been part of church history and how it's been celebrated in various church festal days, much like um, the Feasts of Israel. But on the church calendar, Easter is, a, is the highest of the festal days that is celebrated by the church in history, and it's, it's the most important one. And I was thinking as I was looking through our liturgies, um, what we did, and because this is our traditional liturgy that we do on this day, and we, we change it a little bit, but two years ago, um, we were about maybe three or four or five weeks into our lockdown, and maybe you recall, we did, we did our Easter service online on Zoom, and that was a low point probably for us there. And uh, we would probably do it differently if we had uh, to do that over again. Hopefully that never happens again.